Well, good morning again. It is uh, good. Uh, if I didn't see you last week, I'll uh, just say it again this week. It's good to be back after uh, spending some time with my family. Over the break, uh, but it, I'm uh, excited to be back with you here in the spring and uh, also excited to find out and to be able to share that it uh, looks like we're going to be together just a little bit longer. Um, originally, the, uh, the agreement was through February. Uh, we have now agreed uh, that I'll be here through June 30th. So uh, I'm excited. Uh, for, oh, uh, yeah. It's not why I said that, but thank you. That's kind. Uh, we continue our sermon series looking um, at the book of Genesis. And I want to communicate something this morning that I probably should have communicated from the very beginning. Um, and that is, when we set out on a journey in the book of Genesis, the goal was not to finish the book of Genesis. Uh, that's not our goal. Uh, we actually, from the very beginning, the, 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 the objective was to get through chap- the beginning of chapter 12. Um, the first 11 books of Genesis, most Old Testament scholars um, will, will demonstrate, uh, is, a, is a set of, uh, is, a, is a part of Genesis. It is a collective whole. 1 through 11. It's setting the stage for the rest of Genesis where we're introduced to the patriarchs of the people of Israel. And so in chapter 12, we will be introduced to Abram, who will become Abraham, the first uh, and great patriarch of the Israelites. So just to put your mind at ease, uh, we will actually be done uh, at our particular series looking at these first uh, 12 or so chapters um, around the end of February. So the, the finish line is, 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 is now on the horizon, uh, just, to, just to put you at ease. And also, to give you a heads up, that after that, um, I don't know if we're going to take a couple weeks and do something else, or we'll jump right in, but we're going to be looking at something in the New Testament, and uh, I'll, I'll explain a little bit more about that as we get closer to that time. But this morning, we come to the very famous story of Noah and his ark. And it's a story that every Sunday school child has heard and learned. And as before we jump in, I just again want to remind ourselves once again that the author in writing Genesis was not concerned in the same way that you and I are with scientific details. That is to say, on his mind were not, though they might be on our minds, <laughs> concerns about hydrology or geology or seafaring engineering or zoology. <laughs> These concerns were not on the author's mind. And so it's just a reminder of us as we jump into this text that we should be cautious about demanding things from the text that the author never considered to include or not to include. They just were not on his mind, like they might be on ours. So with that introduction, let's pray one more time and ask that God might be present with us. Heavenly Father, we, we do come to you once more as we look at this, your word, words that were written literally thousands of years ago. And yet, if we are here this morning and consider ourselves a follower of Jesus, 
we recognize that this is part of your inspired word. And so somehow, even as old as these words are, and even as foreign as a story like this might be to us in our present day lives, would you convince us by your spirit that this is your truly inspired word? And though you didn't write it directly to us, you intend for us to glean something from it. And so would you now be present with us? Work through me, around me, in spite of me, but however, would you show up by your spirit that we might know when we leave this place, as we have interacted with your holy word, that we have interacted with the living God. May this be so this morning, for Christ's sake. Amen. Well, in the ancient Near Eastern world, the story of a cataclysmic flood is not unique to Genesis by a long shot. In fact, almost all civilizations from that time period have a flood account. And so the original audience of Israel would have likely, very likely, been familiar with some of these other accounts. And this has often caused critics to try to dismiss the Bible as unreliable. It is claimed that the Bible is simply borrowing from these other fanciful accounts, older narratives. And therefore, if these are older stories of a widespread flood, then that must discount and undermine the truth, trustworthiness of Genesis. And I would say far from it. <laughs> I would actually make the case that it's because there are so many narratives accounts of an ancient widespread flood across a wide range of cultural cosmological accounts far from proving the unreliability of Genesis rather demonstrates that something catastrophic must have happened. Something must have happened. If various civilizations have these accounts and often having accounts that are independent of each other, rather points to the possibility that something cataclysmic actually did happen at some point in time. And therefore, we should not be surprised if we do see things that are similar between the various accounts. What matters, therefore, I would, I would make the case, is which account of all these accounts give us the best account of what happened and why it happened. And answers, I would also suggest, to those questions can be found in the differences that we find here in this Genesis account. One of those key differences that the original audience, the Israelites, would have found had to do with the reason for the flood in the per first place. In Another account, the reason for the flood, flooding of the world, was because the world had gotten so overcrowded. <laughs> Humanity was too widespread. And so the God said, you know what? Let's just start over. It's just too crowded. Something, a little bit of that resonates with me living in Queens, but that's another, that's another topic for another day. Another account depicts the reason why the floods come is because 
the humans were making so much noise that they were keeping the gods from sleeping. That's another account, another reason given in other accounts why there is a cataclysmic flood. These are not the reasons why the writer of Genesis says that there was a great flood. If you recall last week, the beginning of chapter 6 of Genesis, we read this, The Lord Yahweh saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. This morning, we further read in verse 11, and it actually is said twice, the earth was filled with violence. The earth was filled with violence. In other words, it was not that humanity had overpopulated the earth, according to the writer of Genesis, but rather the corruption and violence of humanity had overpopulated the earth. It was the violence being committed by the hands of humanity that was so widespread, not humanity itself. Now, sitting here in our context, you and I in America, have only heard about this kind of extreme violence really from a distance. We've seen injustice, yes. We've seen evil, yes. But despite the hyper-focus on the very worst things in our society by the major news outlets that are always put in front of us, <laughs> I wouldn't describe our current cultural moment as the land was filled with violence. The writer isn't simply saying that people were sinful. No, far from seeing collaboration and community and creativity among humanity that God intended from the very beginning, humanity was engaged in the utter destruction of fellow image bearers. And so much so that we saw last week, God regrets. God is grieved. God is sorry he has created humanity. And we noted that that's because God has voluntarily tied himself and his being and everything within him to how things go in the world that he has created. And so if humanity reflects his goodness and justice, it is good with God. When they don't, our God suffers. It deeply, genuinely, profoundly affects him. And so after seeing that posture of God last week, this morning, we find out what he's going to do about it. What is his plan? Destroy it. Destroy it. This is a cosmic act of judgment on humanity and the earth by God. And as much as you and I love to teach our children about the ark and all the animals and keep Fisher-Price and other toy-making companies in business with all the animals, the story, we don't like this part of the story. 
frankly, at times we're, we're kind of embarrassed that it's actually here in our Bible. That the God of the Bible could do this kind of thing. That the, Bible, that the God of the Bible could enforce his judgment and even we might say wrath like this bothers us. But here's the thing. Whether you're here this morning, you consider yourself a follower of Jesus or not. I would make the case with you that we would much prefer the God of the Bible that is described as the cosmic judge who does not respond to utter and complete evil and violence excuse me, who does respond to utter and complete evil and violence with judgment and wrath. We prefer that God over a God who simply shrugs his shoulders and goes about his business when humanity commits outrageous and egregious acts of violence against each other. It's actually the impulse. It's a similar impulse behind Cancel culture, if you think about it. A public judging of an unjust wrongdoing. Whatever we may not like about cancel culture, and there's a lot to critique. (laughs) It's simply a widespread and public judgment against someone for doing something in our eyes that is unjust. Now, if there is a God... I would make the case, humbly, you and I don't want that God to be indifferent. The theologian Miroslav Volf, whose mother country, Croatia, the former Yugoslavia, knows very well and firsthand, in a way that we Americans don't, the violence that humanity is capable of inflicting on others. He speaks of witnessing the atrocities brought on his fellow countrymen in his book, Free of Charge. The the last end of this quote that I'm about to read is actually in your bulletin. I'm going to read a little bit more before that reflection in your bulletin. Bear with me. It's a little extended. This is what he says. I used to think that wrath was unworthy of God. Isn't God love? Shouldn't divine love be beyond wrath. God is love, and God loves every person and every creature. That's exactly why God is wrathful against some of them. My last resistance to the idea of God's wrath was a casualty of the war in the former Yugoslavia, the region from which I come. According to some estimates, 200,000 people were killed, and over 3 million were displaced. My villages and cities were destroyed. My people shelled day in and day out. Some of them brutalized beyond imagination. And I could not imagine God not being angry. Or think of Rwanda, where 800,000 people were hacked to death in 100 days. How did God react to the carnage? By simply doting on the perpetrators in a grandparently fashion? By refusing to condemn the bloodbath, but instead affirming the perpetrator's basic goodness? 
Or wasn't God fiercely angry with them? And here's what's in your bulletin. Though I used to complain about the indecency of the idea of God's wrath, I came to think that I would have to rebel against a God who wasn't wrathful in the sight of the world's evil. God isn't wrathful in spite of being love. God is wrathful because God is love. It's because God is so deeply moved at the pain inflicted on fellow human image bearers that causes him to step in and say, no more. No more. Now, as much as the reality of such a widespread act of God's judgment being the thing that catches our attention today, that likely would not have been what caught the original audience's attention. C.S. Lewis refers to something called that he calls chronological snobbery, and I think sometimes it actually infiltrates the way we actually come to approach Scripture. Chronological snobbery. We can, not always, and not blatantly, but we can myself included, done this in the past, sometimes think that the people back then, thousands of years ago, (laughs) were simply more gullible than we are today. They were more easily persuadable. But my friends, what God tells Noah is about to happen here and the instructions he gives to Noah to follow in response to what God's saying about to happen would not have been any easier for Noah to digest or to positively respond to than it would then for you or me. If you're a follower of Jesus here this morning and have ever found yourself feeling like you stick out for being a follower of Jesus in this life, in this culture, in this city, either in your workplace or in your family, among some of your friends, if you've ever felt the tension of living in what is more and more a post-Christian, post-religious society, you have tasted just a small taste of what Noah most certainly must have experienced when God comes to him with his plans to bring a flood and then instructions to build an ark. (laughs) Noah certainly faced with the reality that people are going to find him at least, at a bare minimum, a little odd (laughs) if he's going to follow God here and now. And notice how the author describes Noah's response. It's very simple and straightforward. First, verse 22 of chapter 6. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Then, verse 5 of chapter 7, And Noah did all that the Lord commanded him. Finally, verse 16 of chapter 7, And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him. There's nothing noted in the text about any further interaction between Noah and God. There's no mention of whether Noah wrestled with all these instructions. Perhaps he did. The text just doesn't tell us. What it tells us is simply Noah's obedient 
response. He did all that God, that Yahweh commanded him. Noah obeyed. Now, you and I are in a place in the evangelical church today where I would say, I would suggest we actually have a mixed bag relationship with calls for obedience to God. On the one hand, yes, we know we're supposed to obey God. Of course, yeah, yeah, we, we obey God. Yeah, of course. No one would deny that. But at the same time, we are deeply suspicious about what may turn into simple external behavior modification. Are we not? And furthermore, we live in a time in a, in a culture where one of the greatest human virtues is to live authentically, right? Being your true self, embracing your truth, we're told. And so to be someone or something on the outside that really isn't you on the inside is absolutely verboten. And so you and I get a little antsy in our seats, don't we, whenever we hear the idea of obedience being addressed. We don't want to be like the Pharisees. We don't want to be like those that are self-righteous or those who think they can somehow impress God or others simply by what they're doing, what they're told. And I would say there's something within that impulse that is absolutely correct. Absolutely. I mean, after all, we are told, whereas humanity looks on the outside, God looks at the heart. Yes. And in the church, I would say there has been a healthy correction to an approach to God's laws that caused people to try to be obedient, thinking that that was the way to somehow secure God's favor, or at least made you look good and acceptable to somebody in somebody else's sight, whether that be a parent, a teacher, a pastor, a leader. You just did the right thing. You grit your teeth, you obeyed, whether it felt right or not. And so in the church, there has been a helpful reaction to, what it, to simple behavior modification. But now the pendulum has swung so far in the opposite direction. That subtly or not so subtly, the message has now become, unless you're following Jesus and obeying with a heart that actually fully desires to obey, you're simply being disingenuous. You're not being authentic. And that's wrong. Obeying authentically is what really matters. And I would say, yes, that's the ideal. <laughs> that is the ideal. To fully obey with a grateful, thankful heart. But my friends, this side of the new heavens, the new earth, our motives are always going to remain mixed. By God's grace, yes, those motives can and do more and more change. We do more and more. It is possible more and more to genuinely desire to respond to God's love and his kindness by following his son. But that's not always the case. And so whether your heart and your gut feeling towards someone right now who has wronged you <laughs> is loving and kind toward them, or it is a posture of wanting to return vengeance to them, 
it's always better to obey God's command to not murder them. <laughs> and yeah, that's, 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 a, that's, a, that's, a, that's an extreme hypothetical. But here's the point. At the end of the day, the goal and ideal that every follower of Jesus should be pursuing is, yes, genuinely obeying him more and more out of a transformed, grateful heart and less and less from a self-righteous, legalistic heart. But how do we get there? How do we get there? How is Noah able to obey here in this extreme circumstance in the face of this coming storm? And it comes, I think, from a proper understanding of who God is. It's, it's actually not rocket science. Who God is and a proper understanding of his commandments and their purpose. Look, there are always lists, spoken or unspoken, of acceptable and unacceptable behavior and acts that make their way into the church. You do this kind of thing, you're, you're part of the group, you, you fit in, you're, you're accepted. Oftentimes, we're actually confusing keeping certain kinds of religious etiquette with obeying God's commands. I mean, how many Sundays in a given year you're actually in a worship service, what you eat or drink, and the like, often really fall more under the category of wisdom than under the category of God's commandments. And furthermore, God's commandments this is important, are never arbitrary. God's laws are never something outside of himself and his own good and just character. It's not like God's commandments are things that God picked and chose from out there, pulled them together, told us to do them to keep us busy, <laughs> to keep us occupied, to simply keep us in line during our time on this earth. God's commandments are not arbitrary. And that means, therefore, when we disobey, when we don't follow God's commands, it's more than simply breaking a law or infringing on a command. We're actually falling short of who we were created to be as God's image bearers. We are missing the mark, so to speak. That's what sin means, after all. You see, we aren't fully reflecting image bearers because we keep a set of arbitrary commandments that God gathered together to keep us in order. We are his image bearers as we follow his lead and his character in the way we reflect his good and just and creative reign as our creator, both in our daily tasks, our work, our endeavors, and our relationships with one another. If we miss that, if we get that wrong, if we forget that, our approach to following Jesus will become and feel legalistic. And in that legalistic approach to God's commands, there is an approach, there is a posture that seeks to get something from God. In other words, we may not say this, <laughs> we may not be that cavalier or bold. I do this in order to secure something. That's why I obey. That's why I keep this commandment. But if we find at times that obedience feels rote and tiring, perhaps it's time to check our motives and to recheck 
our understanding of God's posture towards us. Perhaps our obedience has become a simple contractual agreement with God in hopes to ensure good standing or respect or happiness or simply a life of blessing and free from hardship. But notice that obedience from Noah here didn't get him life free from troubles. I love the zoo. I love monkeys. I don't want to spend a half a year in close quarters with monkeys. <laughs> Nor did obedience for Noah here mean that he gained some kind of esteem and respect from his neighbors and co-workers. <laughs> Far from it. At the end of the day, a self-righteous and legalistic approach to Jesus, to obedience, fails to account for the reality that you and I are already God's beloved. Remember what we read last week, the beginning of chapter 6. Noah found favor or found grace in God's sight. Despite what you and I learned in Sunday school, Noah is not the primary actor in these scenes. God is. Noah was instructed to build the ark in such a way that required God to be the one, in verse 16 of chapter 7, to shut the door. God is doing the protecting. God is doing the saving. The fact that Noah is being saved in the midst of this widespread and cataclysmic act of judgment on humanity is sheerly out of God's kindness towards Noah. Because we're going to see in two weeks, Noah is not anyway perfect. And so any approach to following Jesus to obedience that doesn't start with the core belief that God is kind at his heart will not sustain you, especially when the storms of life and your life come your way. And so we avoid the self-righteous, legalistic obeying of God's commands when we no longer obey in order to get something from God, when we more and more instead start with the fact that God is a good God at his heart, that he grieves just like you do in the face of evil and disobedience and sin, when we start with the fact that he knows what makes us tick and genuinely wants us to flourish in this life and in fact experience life abundantly in this world that he has created, that he has shaped, and that he has ordered. And the more that you and I are convinced of that, obedience will less and less feel burdensome to the degree that it does. And ultimately, where we see this most clearly, of course, is at the cross. Because there we have someone who not only finds favor with God, not only is not imperfect, but is perfect, is the true image bearer that you and I were intended to be. One who, even in the midst of the storm, knows what's coming his way, and in the garden prays, God, if there's any, Father, if there's any other way, please, can there be another way? Three times he asks, but he obeys. He goes to the cross. He takes on the full wrath the full judgment 
that this might not ever have to happen again to you or to me. And so that all, just like Noah and his family were safe in the ark, so you and I, being found in Jesus Christ, are also safe. That is the God that comes to us and says, follow me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, though often it is difficult to understand at times and certainly difficult to believe and even follow. Jesus, help us. Would you more and more demonstrate, prove, may we believe more and more that it is out of your kindness and your goodness that you call us to follow you. That following you, obeying you is is actually in the end for our own good because you do know what makes us tick. And not only were you our creator and designed us in such a way that following you is best for us, but you stepped in when we rebelled even against your goodness in order that we might be once again restored and saved, being found in Christ. Jesus, convince us more and more of that reality, we pray. For your sake, amen.